what, is, what is about to follow in Luke 15 are three of the most famous parables that Jesus will ever tell. But I just wanted to kind of set the stage for what, where, where they came from. What, what was the climate that Jesus told those in? What was going on when Jesus tells these three great parables? Tax collectors and sinners um, were gathering around to hear Jesus. There was something about Jesus that sinful people felt comfortable around him. And that is foreign to us, right? Isn't that foreign to sometimes how we who have grown up in the church think? Because we're not comfortable around sinners. That's more of a statement about us than it is about them. That's more of we need to change than anybody else needs to change. Because the sinners and tax collectors, who at that time, the tax collectors were were considered by uh, the Pharisees to be treasoners. I mean, these were people of Jewish descent who were going, working for the Roman government, going against their own people, collecting more than they should have. And they were treasoners. Is that a word? They were committing treason. But yet they were attracted to Jesus. They wanted to be around Jesus. There was something about the message that Jesus proclaimed that sinners and people like that found comfort in. But, but, but there was also something about the message that Jesus proclaimed that the religious people found off-putting and were uncomfortable by because he eats with those people. In the first century, Jerusalem, to eat, to sit down and eat with someone was more of a statement of, I'm hungry and you've got good food. I mean, if you invite me to your house and you, I mean, I may or may not come, but then once you start giving me the menu, you know, and it's right up my alley, you know, if you start talking about barbecue sauce and you start talking about smoked brisket and burn ends and baked potato casserole and, you know, things that really touch my heart, well, then you may, you may just get me. And then if you start talking about dessert and things like chocolate cream crunch. And... Anyway. But in Jesus' time, to sit down and table with someone meant a lot more than that. If you sat down and ate with someone, it meant, I accept you. It meant, you are one of mine. You are my people. I am yours and you are mine. It meant, I will live for you. It meant, I will die for you. That's what it meant. That was the significance of those times. I read a Bible commentator this week, uh, and specifically over Luke 15, and he went into great detail about how in those times, the significance of sitting down and eating with someone, tabling with someone, it was a big, big deal. And the Pharisees didn't like it. Because if Jesus accepts them, the way they live, the way they are, then I don't want any part of that. See, the Pharisees made, made it really hard. In the Old Testament, there are some 613 commands to keep. 613 laws that you must follow in the Old Testament. And this is what the Pharisees did. They followed the law to the letter of the law. They even tithed the mint in their garden. Like if they would grow flowers in their garden, they'd be like, well, 10% of those go to, the, go to God. The, everything in their garden. They, they followed the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. 
613 laws, and Jesus broke it down to two. Hey, Jesus, what's the most important law? And he said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to say, those two commands, everything else falls under. But the Pharisees didn't like that because they, they found a piety in their keeping of commands. Sometimes as Christians, we get like that, right? Well, I've never done that. I've never done that. We pull, pull aside our, our skirts and, and, well, I've never, at least I've never done that. <laughs> at least I'm not as bad as you, or as you, or as you, you. That's what we do. We start looking at other people and justifying ourselves. And that's what the Pharisees did. I mean, for pity's sake, the, the law was remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The Pharisees added 39 laws to that. They said, they, they figured out, well, you can't take, you can only take this amount of steps. You can only write two letters of the alphabet on the Sabbath, or it was considered work. You can only erase two letters of the alphabet on the Sabbath, or it was considered work. You could not tie a knot on the Sabbath. The person who invented Crocs wishes he was born back then. They'd have been called Sabbath shoes. And Crocs would have been all the rage. It would have been cool to wear Crocs. I'm just kidding. I'm giving my daughter a hard time. She likes Crocs. They couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath, Jesus even said to him one time, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God put the Sabbath into place so we wouldn't work ourselves to death. So we'd take some time to rest every once in a while. But the Pharisees, they just put laws upon laws upon laws. And sinners were people who did not keep the law. So if you didn't keep the 613 laws and then all their sub-laws, you were considered a sinner. So that's who Jesus was hanging out with. People who just said, you know what? I'm tying my shoes. <laughs> they were the sinners that Jesus was eating with, that the Pharisees were all worked up about. And we like to laugh, but boy, we get worked, out, we get worked up about some things too, though, that people do, that we think they shouldn't. And it gets in our crawl. We get so worked up about others. And what did Jesus tell us? Hey, before you go telling somebody he's got a, a speck of dust in his eye, get the, uh, the tree out of yours. So this is, this is, this is what Jesus is, is encountering here. You've got the Pharisees who see that Jesus is being accepting of sinners. You've got the sinners who, who don't follow the law. You've got the tax collectors who are worse than the sinners because they not only don't follow the law, they're extorting others. They're, uh, and Jesus sits down to eat with them. And the Pharisees don't like this. And you, we see this many times in Jesus' ministry. Remember when Zacchaeus, the wee little man, climbed a tree uh, to see Jesus. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. And everybody around murmured and complained that Jesus would go to this guy's house. Do you remember when Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house and, and the woman came in and she broke open the, the ointment and she began to anoint him and touch, touch him and, and the, the Pharisee thought to himself, Jesus, if you knew what kind of person this was that you're letting allow sit with you, what, 
This was very important to the Pharisees. It was very important in this, these times. Who you tabled with, who you ate with, who you supped with. And so into that, we, we have Jesus. And then Jesus tells these three parables. The first two, the parable about the lost coin, the parable about the lost sheep. <clears throat> and as I was reading, reading Luke 15 this week, I was beginning to think about, we've all lost something, right? You ever lost your keys? I mean, I love my mother, but she's very forgetful. <laughs> I'm beginning to see that I inherited that. I constantly <laughs> will say to Sally, oh, what did I do with this? And she's like, I don't know. What did you do with it? <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you'd know. <laughs> I was hoping you'd be a little more organized than I am. But I, I thought about a story uh, when, when our worship leader, Jessie May, right up here, when she was about one years old or maybe 18 months, something like that. Uh, I still lived at home at the time. I was still living with my parents. I was still a young man. And uh, <laughs> I guess my dad thought that was real funny. Uh, I was still a young man. And, and I remember uh, early on a Saturday morning, a frantic phone call came from, from Jesse's mom, Crystal, and said, Jesse's gone. She's gone. She's not in the house. They lived in an apartment over there uh, off of North 31st Street or something like that behind Dick's Sporting Goods. And it wasn't Dick's Sporting Goods then, but <clears throat> they had like a four-room apartment. She said she's nowhere. Her and her sister Rachel shared a bedroom, and there was a window in the bedroom. And Crystal said, somebody's broke. Somebody's opened that window. It's come in and taken her. She's gone. My mom and dad rushed over there. I don't remember going. <laughs> Not very empathetic, I guess. I was concerned about my sleep. I said I was young, immature. They looked everywhere. And they couldn't find her. They, they looked everywhere, and she was nowhere outside. Called the police. She was nowhere to be found. They were in panic mode. She had gotten off of her bed, rolled back behind it up against the wall, and then was under, like, had gotten under some other stuff. And you looked under the bed, and you couldn't see her. You thought she was gone. So they, it was hours, wasn't it? Yeah, that they looked and thought that she was gone. And when they found her, the joy. <laughs> and you know what that's like when you find what you're looking for, when you find something that's lost. The joy that comes to you. Well, Jesus begins to relate to the story about loss being found, about a lost coin. I know you all thought I was going to say she was lost for 15 years and raised by wolves. And <laughs> the, story, <laughs> the story would have been a little better then, probably. She sometimes acts like that's the case. But Jesus relates the story of the lost coin. And then he relates the story of the lost sheep. And how that Jesus, how that the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the lost sheep. And we've all heard that. Songs have been written about it. And, and then Jesus goes in to this parable. The parable of the prodigal son. And this, this parable and, and this, this scripture reading, Luke 15, and particularly this parable was on the, the church lectionary for the week. And when I read it, it just spoke to me. And millions of messages have been preached on the prodigal son. 
This is just going to be another one. But I hope that we can see ourselves and see Jesus in this story as we get into it. Let's go to the next slide. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. This story, we have always talked about it as the prodigal son. This is a story about two sons. This is a story about two young men. I was going to call this message the Lost Boys with a reference to the Corys, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman from the 80s. Some of you remember that. But then I knew that, though I knew that most of you wouldn't get the reference and the ones that did would be offended. So I decided not to. There was a man and he had two sons. We always focus on the, the lost son, the prodigal son. But I want to just challenge your thinking this morning. Who was the son that was really lost? Just think about that as we get into it. There was a man and he had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And what we don't completely understand in uh, 2019 and in this day and age, what this meant back then. This was the equivalent of this younger son coming to his father and saying, I wish you were dead because I want what's mine and I want it now. I don't want to wait until you die. So can I please have my stuff now? Because... My relationship with you is not worth waiting for. I want what I want, and I want it now. Father, give me my share of my estate. And look at the father. He doesn't try to talk him out of it. So, he divided his property between them. According to the story, it looks like both of them got their money. Both of them, at that time, got their inheritance. And this is the younger son. And in those days, he would have got one-third, and the older son would have got the double portion, two-thirds. Nonetheless, it was still obviously a lot of money because later it says he spent all of his wealth. So he says to the father, give me my share of the state. So he divided his property between them. And there's a, there's a sermon that could be preached in there about wanting what God has for you, but wanting it before you're ready for it. I know in my own life, there have been times where... Uh, I've wanted things and I wasn't, that I wasn't ready for. I've wanted blessings that I wasn't ready for. I think about in uh, 2010, I had a devil in my ear telling me, you know what, You're, you should be the pastor of this church. It's time for you to be the pastor of this church. And I wasn't ready for that. And I didn't want that. But thankfully, that devil's not here anymore. No. And I should not call someone a devil. I believe that the enemy was trying to use him to influence me. Use them to influence me. I love that individual. We have a relationship now. I'm just saying that at that time, I believe the enemy was trying to get me to want something that I wasn't ready for. And the enemy will like to do that with you. Young people, the enemy wants to get you to want something you're not ready for. In a relationship with a boy, he wants you to, get, he wants you to want something that you're not ready for. In a relationship with a woman, a, with a girl, a young man, he wants you to want something that you're not ready for. At 15, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, you're not ready emotionally to handle adult relationships. And the enemy wants you to want that, and you're not ready for it. How do you know what I'm ready for and what I'm not ready for? I just know what this says. (laughs) 
Don't fall into that trap. Young people, don't fall into that trap. It's a shame that young people have to go through stuff before they realize, man, those old people knew what they were talking about. (laughs) Be the one young person that doesn't have to. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. Another translation says, a few days later. How do you think the house was those next couple of days? Probably pretty tense, huh? Oh, Mr. Big Shot, going to go out and save the world. I can just hear the older brother. Not long after that, he got together all he had, set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. King James tells us uh, riotous living. I want you to remember that, though, because later the older brother is going to make an accusation that we don't know if necessarily is true. He squandered it with wild living, riotous living. He spent all of it. He thought he knew what was best for him, and now he's broke. Go to the next slide, if you would. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He didn't follow the Dave Ramsey plan and have six months of living expenses stored up and his $1,000 emergency fund. I'm not making fun of Dave Ramsey. He's a smart man. (laughs) He didn't plan very well. He squandered it. And then trouble came, and then he began to be in need. For the first time in his life, his stomach growled. For the first time in his life, he knew what it was to be hungry. For the first time in his life, he knew what it was to not have anything. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country. So he got a job. I can imagine how the interview went. What are your skills? Uh, Riotous living. (laughs) I can spend money quickly. Um, Okay, you can feed the pigs. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into into his fields to feed pigs. And understand that the people that Jesus is talking to when he tells this parable would have been disgusted by this. Because they do not, pigs are not something, pigs are unclean. They, don't, they can't go near pigs. They don't touch pigs. If they touch pigs, they have to ceremonially, ceremonially wash before that they can re-enter the community. Pigs were disgusting. They didn't touch them. They didn't eat them. They didn't feed them. Aren't you glad, by the way, side note, aren't you glad Peter has that dream in in Acts where all the food comes down when the pigs come down and and God says to him, kill and eat, and Peter's like, no way, that's that's unclean. And then God frees him of that. So now that we can eat bacon... So he sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pig slop, with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. He longed to fill his stomach, but no one would give him anything. Next slide. But when he came to his senses, 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And we often talk about the prodigal son like this is his moment of conversion. This is his moment of repentance. But honestly, this is just only out of his need. This is only because, he, only because he's hungry. Does he say, I think I'll go back to father's house? He's, he's, he, his desire, he's driven by his need. Not, he doesn't say, I can't believe I did that to my dad. He doesn't say, I can't believe I have let my dad down. I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this. He says, my father's house, the servants in my father's house are eating better than this. I'm going to go there so that I can be fed. And so we often talk about the prodigal as this being the moment of conversion. But he says, Father, I've sinned against... Uh, and so he prepares his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So that's his speech that he prepares for his dad. Next slide. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Just a quick point here that the father saw him. How did the father see him a long way off? The father was looking for him. The father was looking for him to come home. The father was looking for him to come back. I think about when, when, I was, when we were younger, we'd go on vacations a lot together as family, and sometimes we'd be in different cars, and my dad would always stand out on the balcony at the hotel, wait until everybody got there. He wasn't happy until everybody was there. And that's how fathers are. That's how, that's how parents are. And that's how this father was. He was waiting for, the, for his son to come home. And when he saw him, he was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to him. Again, in, in this time period, adult men did not run. There weren't decathlons. There weren't triathlons. They just didn't. It was shameful for an adult male to run. First of all, what they wore were like, we would consider them today, guys, like dresses. There were these robes. For an adult male, for, for the father to run, he would have to shame himself, grab his skirt, so to speak, and run to his son. It was a shameful thing for the father to have to do. But he did it because of the compassion for his son. He ran to his son. And so then the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's saying his practice speech. Next slide. But the father interrupts him. He doesn't, he doesn't finish everything that he practiced. And the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Meaning, meaning sonship, meaning he's my son again. If you wore a ring in the house, you were part of the family. He was a son again. And put the best shoes on his feet. Nikes, Jordans, Yeezys. Uh, I don't know, kids. Ugg. Boots, if you're a lady. The father was reinstating the son. The son was only motivated by his hunger, but the father reinstates him. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine is dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate together, and I believe this was the moment of conversion when the son went into the house and had a party. And some people will never know their worth until they see you celebrate them. 
Some people will never feel welcome until they feel celebrated by you. Do you know that in the parable that Jesus tells right before this, that he says, heaven rejoices, and there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. There's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, 2.7 million Christians are converted every year. That's uh, 5,987 a day, I think. I did the math earlier. It's 308 a minute. That means there's a party in heaven every 4.5 seconds. The best job in heaven is a party planner. Because every four and a half seconds, they're throwing a party in heaven. You know, they say on, uh, around here, hey, go into the medical field. That's where the best job is. People are always going to be sick. Go into the funeral business. People are always going to die. That's where the money is. You'll always have a job. Well, in heaven, there are no funerals. And in heaven, there is no hospital. In heaven, all there is is celebration night and day. And we are going to a place where there is celebration, where we will not die, where there will be no sickness, no disease, where Jesus will be the light. Amen? Amen. That is our hope. We are going to a place of constant celebration. They don't pause to mourn. Every four and a half seconds, the angels are rejoicing. And they probably rejoice more than four and a half seconds, so it just overlaps. Because I don't know, it it takes almost four and a half seconds to say rejoice. Okay. So he goes in. And and, and that's where a lot of us end the story, and we focus a lot on the older son, or the younger son, and how he was out living the way he wanted to live, and how he squandered what was the father's, and... And we talk about how he has to finally come home. And then we, we, we uh, start playing the music and try to get you to come to the altar and, and repent. And, and we end the story there. But I believe this is the crux of the story. See, I believe, I believe at some point in all of our lives that we are found in this story. I believe at some point we are all somewhere in this story. Sometimes we're the, we're the younger son out living riotously. Sometimes we're the older son out in the field working. Sometimes we're the father giving grace. Sometimes, if you're like me, you're the fatted calf that is getting ready to be introduced into the story. But we are all in this story somewhere. And lots of times when we think about the prodigal son, we think, you know what? I used to be the prodigal son. Uh, And I know some people who are prodigals now. Lord, save them. Lord, bring them in. But, but this is where I believe most of us will find ourselves. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. It was probably Chris Tomlin, uh, worship album, or, um, um, you know, insert your favorite Christian artist. I'm sure it was Christian music. He heard music and dancing. They must have been dancing loud because I've never heard dancing other than tap dancing. But he heard music and dancing. And so he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother has come and your father's filled the, catted, killed the fatted calf. 
because he's home safe and sound. And the older brother became angry. Just hearing your brother's home made him mad. Hearing the words, your brother, made him angry. And whether we, agree, whether we admit to it or not, there are people's names that when we hear them, we just get mad. When we hear them, we become angry. When we hear certain people's names, there are certain people that rub us wrong. It might be me. There are people who rub you wrong, and when you hear their name, they, it just something inside of you starts to rise up. I'm here to tell you that's not God rising up inside of you. When you feel that start to rise up, that's the place of repentance. Yeah, but you don't know what they've done. No, but I know what you have to do. Forgive. I don't know what, what's been done to you. I don't. And a lot of us have had bad things done to us, and that is the truth. And we don't deny that, and we don't pretend it never happened. We face it, and we talk about it. But then we forgive, and we move on. We don't stay in situations where we're being harmed. We don't stay in situations where, and allow people to abuse us. But we forgive, and we move on. And we let God heal us. Your brothers come, he replied. Oh, the, the brother, the older brother just got mad. And the father has killed the fatted calf because he's back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He thought, I'm not going to go eat with him. I'm not going to celebrate with him. He's like the Pharisees. I'm not going to, Jesus, what are you doing? Father, what are you doing killing the fatted calf and celebrating for him? Don't you remember what he did? Jesus, what are you doing eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? What are you doing? Don't you know what they do, that, that they're unclean? This, older, this younger brother was unclean. And the father wrapped his arms around him. He became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father and said, look. <laughs> look. You know you're in trouble when somebody starts that starts a conversation with you that way. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. See, the problem with the older son, there's a problem with the way the younger son views the father and the way the older son views the father. Remember the younger son's speech? He says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then the older son thinks, I can earn sonship. But they're both wrong. Sonship is a gift. It's covenant. It's covenant. But unfortunately, we don't think about it like that. If I were to ask most of you, hey, are you a child of God? You would first say, yeah. And then you think and say, well, I hope so. I try to be. I do the best I can. I think I'm a child of God. I want to be a child of God. I try to be a child of God. If you ask my son, Miles, hey, is Chubby up there in the platform? Is that your dad? He'll say, yeah. Is that your son? Yeah, it's my son. He doesn't say, well, I think I am. I'm trying to be. That's the difference between covenant and contract. We think that our relationship to God is like an employer. And that's how the older son was. I have slaved for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And I never even got a goat to celebrate with my friends. I never got a party. I didn't get a birthday party. I didn't get a... I didn't get a welcome back to the field party. Maybe he heard the music and dancing and thought, hey, that party's for me. No, you remember the guy who took all your dad's money and 
wished, told me he wished he was dead. Now, he spent all of that. He's back and got reinstated. His, his view of the father was a contract like an employer. And if we aren't careful, we talk about God that way. We talk about God like that, like he's our employer. But our relationship, see, see a contract can be upheld in a court of law. But what we have with God is a covenant, which is above the court of law. We have covenant with the Father. He has made covenant with us. We are grafted in through Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us. We are grafted into the family, and we are now heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. We are children of God. We don't have to question that. We don't have to wonder that. We don't have to say, I think I am. I try to be. It's a covenant. And Jesus on the cross is making a deal with himself. God making a deal with God. And we get to get in on that. Because Jesus took our place. Because if it was me taking my place, then the deal, the covenant would always be weak on one side. But because it was God making a covenant with God. And then Jesus on my behalf. And then I get grafted in because of him. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now it's not weak on my side. Because Jesus is in me, and I'm in him, and we're joint heirs together. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. If you get nothing, out of, nothing else today, walk out here knowing that you are a child of the Most High God. You are a child of God. Okay, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Okay, so when we tell these parables and we tell them in order, we always talk about how that the younger son was like the lost sheep that the shepherd went to search for. But I don't know if that's the case because the father never goes after the younger son. He doesn't. He knows that life will bring him back. Who the father has to go plead with is the self-righteous. The father has to go plead with the religious one. The father has to go plead with the one who has never left. The father goes and tries to get him back into the party. Come back to the 99. Come back. Come celebrate with us. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. There is a way where working in the field, he says, I, the, he comes in from the field, he's working for the Father. And there is a way where sometimes working in the field is further from the Father's heart than the far country. Because we can fall in love with the things of God, we can fall in love with church, and we can still not have the heart of God. We can still be the most judgmental people you have ever met. We can gossip and judge be judge and jury, and we can turn our nose up at every sinner we see and every tax collector we see and every lost son that we see and be the furthest thing from the father. And that's what the older son was. And that, once you're the younger son and you come home, the temptation is to become the older son. That's the temptation. And the father goes out and pleads with him. Look, after all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And that's a lie. Nobody's perfect. Remember the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus? And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, um, <clears throat> what is the law? How do, you, how do you interpret it? 
And so he tells Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've spoken rightly, now go and do this. And he says, but I've done this from my youth, from the time I was a boy, I did all of this. And Jesus said, but there's something still lacking in you. Just because you know how to follow the orders, just because you know how to pretend like you're churchy, just because you know how to look good in church, you know, raise one hand every third song in church, just because you know exactly how to do it, when to close your eyes, when to bow your head, that does not mean that you're right with the Father. Jesus said, you lack something. And we don't like to talk in church about what he told him to do. You remember what he told him to do? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Oh, never mind, Jesus. <laughs> Forget I asked the question. Sometimes just following rules is not enough. And when we put our faith in that, we're putting our faith in the wrong things. The, the older son, the father goes out. <clears throat> you never even gave me a young goat. And look at the expectations of this son. Look at his expectations of the father. They're so low. I've never had goat meat, but I imagine it's not good. When I went to Haiti on a missions trip, when we went to a restaurant, my uncle said, only order chicken. That's the only thing you know for sure what it is. I said, okay. So we ate one meal a day, and I ate chicken for 11 days. <laughs> I don't know why, where that came from. Uh, next slide. The expectations of the older son of God were so low. He has such a low view of his father. The older son never addresses him as father in this entire uh, story. He never calls him father. But when this son of yours who squandered all your property with prostitutes, whoa, wait a minute, where are you getting that? King James said it was riotous living. NIV says uh, reckless living or wild living, I'm sorry. The older son is projecting the sins of himself, of his mind, what he would have done if he had had the guts to defy his father. Be careful when you start naming sins of other people because it might just be you projecting your thoughts and your desires onto them. Other people's sins are not your business unless they come to you and ask for your advice. If I see you in what I think is perceived sin, I'm not to call Dave or Tony or John and say, hey, and then what we like to do is we like to mask it as a prayer request. John, really pray for uh, Jessie Mae. She, uh, she tied her shoes on the Sabbath. I'm only telling you this so you'll pray. I'm only telling you this so you'll pray. That's not our business. You go into your closet and you pray. And then if you think the sin is so egregious and that it's against someone else, then you go to them and you discuss it privately. Don't project your sins and, and what you think are sins. He doesn't know what he spent the money on. This son of yours squandered all your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me. Everything I have is, is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Beautiful, beautiful story. And there's just so much rich truth in there. Ernest Hemingway is one of the greatest writers of the last century, called this story, The Prodigal Son. He said it's the greatest short story ever written. It is a beautiful story. It has everything. But I love the way that Jesus ends it because we're left to wonder, does the older son ever go in? Does the older son ever go to the table? Does the older son ever gather around and join the party? Or does he just stay out there mad at the world, mad at everybody else, mad at his circumstances? Does he just live an angry life? And I believe Jesus intentionally leaves it this way because he wants us to decide what we will do. What are we going to do? Are we going to join the party? Are we going to join the celebration of our brothers and sisters in Christ? At the, at the beginning of the story, the, fa- the son, in essence, tells the father, you're dead to me. And at the end, the younger son is dead and is back alive. And now the, the oldest son is standing outside with a choice. <clears throat> We're going to end the service this way. I've got lots of notes in here, and I didn't even, we won't even go there. But will you come to the table today with those that you don't necessarily agree with, with those who you think might not be doing everything that they should, with those who you think, well, I know they're here in church today, but I I know they're not living right. They're not living up to my standard. Will you come to the table today as we gather for communion with those who, who I talked about earlier, with a group this size, there's likely people in here who get on your nerves. Will you come to the table today? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which I shed for you. And then he commanded them to do it together, to table together. Jesus was at the table with people who were about to betray him. Jesus was at the table with a denier. Jesus was at the table with doubting Thomas, who wasn't going to believe Jesus was at the table with 11 guys who were going to desert him. John's the only one we see at the cross. John's the only one there when Jesus takes his last breath. Jesus could have asked a couple of them to get up and leave. But Jesus says, you're my people. I'll live for you. I'll die for you. And when we come to the table, that's what we're saying to one another. You're my people. I'll live for you. I'll die for you. The Christian faith is not a faith where where we kill for our faith. But many people have died for their faith. The first disciples, 
They died for their faith. All the time we say, we want an Acts, Acts 2 church. We want a first century church. Well, they all died, you know. Be careful what you wish for. But when we come to the table and we table together, it's not just we're coming to the communion. It's we're coming together and we are becoming one body. We are partakers of one body. We all have our differences. We're all different. We all have different tastes, different likings. We all like different music, different movies, different TV shows, whatever. But we are partakers of one body. We have that in common. We are partakers of one body in Jesus Christ. Members of one body, partakers of one life.